0: Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to
1: Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician. Since retiring from medical practice, I've become an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is Snoopers and Privacy for Family Members. Here's a bit of background. A recent Ontario Court of Appeal judgment held that intrusion had taken place when one person repeatedly examined the private bank records of another person. and The judgment uses the word snooping. Snooping is a fact of life in this age of electronic information. Electronic snooping is a concern for family caregivers because it destroys the privacy of family members who are especially vulnerable to abuse because of Alzheimer's disease, autism, schizophrenia and many more mental and physical challenges. Now, To discuss snoopers and privacy for family members, our guests today are Dr. Andrea Slane and Dr. Bill Bonner. Dr. Slane is an Associate Professor in the Legal Studies Program at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. She holds a PhD in Comparative Literature and a JD in Law, and she is admitted to the Bar in Ontario. Her research focuses on law's engagement with electronic technologies, including how these affect our sense of privacy, our ability to protect privacy and other rights, and associated harms. She's published on a range of internet-related legal issues, including how Canadian privacy law deals with photographs of a person's body, what legal principles are or are not engaged, where the law allows private businesses to voluntarily share customer and employee information with the police and law enforcement generally. Dr. Bill Bonner is associate professor at the Paul J. Hill School of Business, University of Regina, Saskatchewan, where he teaches on the subject of management information studies, or sorry, management information systems. He's conducted research on privacy for over 10 years. He received received his PhD from the University of Calgary. As a privacy advocate, he believes that at the core of privacy is the question of respect and that this is important and worth protecting. He recognizes that privacy interests must be balanced against other interests, but what puzzles him is how unbalanced the balancing act appears to be in practice. He has a forthcoming book chapter entitled The Problem of the Problem of Privacy. So, welcome to the show, Andrea, and Bill, who's going to be joining us a little later. So, first of all, question for you, Andrea. Please tell us more about your background and your career.
2: Well, uh, you did a very nice summary. Thank you very much for that. Um, I have been um, a legal academic since... 2006, so I practiced law for a little while before that, and I was um, an academic in cultural studies uh, prior to going to law school, so I have a bit of a meandering path. Um, But through all of that, I have been very interested in not only the way that uh, the law in its most uh, practical sense operates, but also in the way that we think about law and what it can do for us. So I think that's uh, one of the questions we might want to uh, address today in terms of our expectations of uh, laws about privacy and uh, what kinds of things we can expect um, to see in terms of reform. So I'm happy to continue the conversation about that over the course of the hour.
1: Great. Still again with you, Andrea. In law, who are snoopers?
2: Well, that's an interesting and evolving question. I mean, I think we uh, in Canada are relatively lucky that we have had um, a legal system that has been interested in privacy from a variety of perspectives. Um, so the snoopers could be the sort of nefarious people who we consider criminals and you know, the people who are really trying to get at people's information in order to do them some kind of quite material harm. Um, but snoopers can also be uh, individuals who are, you know, curious or they're, um, simply interested in, in embarrassing somebody that they, you know, have something against, or they might even have no interest uh, in particular person, but simply get some sort of thrill out of knowing something about others that uh, that they're not supposed to know. So there's you know, the sort of category of individuals who might be snoopers. Um, Is relatively broad, and then of course we have laws that are also concerned about um, the kind of snooping that we do condone within the law. So, as you mentioned, one of my interests is about you know the ways in which we uh, permit the police to have access to some of our information, um, the way other sorts of government agencies who now uh, have a whole lot of custodianship over information from all of us. Um, plus private businesses, uh, people who might profit from knowing um, and not in a sort of necessarily negative way from knowing uh, information and being able to compile it. So snooping is one of those things that I think is really endemic, especially to a society that, like we have right now, which is very much run on an information kind of economy. Um, and there are good and bad things that, that come from um, having information out there and people looking at it.
1: Andrew, you mentioned information going to the police. Uh Uh, There's a question about people with mental illnesses. I mean, for example, um, you know, from time to time, sadly, people with certain kinds of mental illness um, exhibit what are called high-risk behaviors. And the police sometimes, because they're threatened by this, will actually, as we know, shoot people, shoot uh-huh. people to death in those sorts of circumstances. And that raises the question of, should the police know that Gordon Atherley suffers from schizophrenia and that may, may make him dangerous? Um, or are there ways in which they can, in fact, um, learn about these things from the point of view of understanding that the parent threat to them is from somebody who isn't really capable of making their own um, judgments about uh, the kind of harm that may flow from all of these activities. Andrea what do you think about that?
2: I think that is a very important topic and I think um, it has Arisen certainly in those circumstances. There was recently a, an incident, as I'm sure you know, in Toronto where a person uh, was killed by the police who who had was coming from the hospital, was even still wearing a hospital gown. Um, and but it, it happens in other circumstances too, where a person's uh, medical history would probably be useful uh for the police to know about. Uh unfortunately of course in those types of situations where they feel threatened, they're not looking for any information except for what's right in front of them. But even in circumstances where somebody um, where it's not as immediate a threat, um, it would be helpful a lot of times for them to uh know about uh how to approach a particular person who has an ailment that could uh, you know, make them act in a way that would be perceived as threatening when really you know there's there are strategies for, for getting that person to, to um, get off of that sort of behavior but we but our privacy laws are often misconstrued to make it um, seem impossible for for health uh, providers to share that information when really I think all of our privacy laws have um, a, a kind of clause in them that makes it clear that if somebody's life is in danger or if there's something that is really to the benefit of the individual that that information can be disclosed. It's just that we don't have ourselves set up in a way to really um, take advantage of those clauses. That you know, That's all too legalistic for those sort of heat of the moment type things. But, uh, but I think privacy can be misused uh, as something that ends up being like a, a wall around a person um, preventing them from receiving services or receiving the kind of treatment that, they, that would actually be to their benefit um, if it's used too much as a blunt instrument.
1: To go back to an earlier point you made about the way in which law, legislation and all of those things are evolving in response to this changing and developing situation surrounding everything that you would refer to as snooping. Please say more about that
2: um well they're they're evolving in in different directions because of the fact that we do have um so many different kinds of interests at play with privacy um so that when proposals are in the works you know there are proposals in the works now um in in parliament uh for one to change the uh the ways and the kinds of tools that the police have at their uh, fingertips to listen in on well to be able to get the capacity to listen in on online conversations, or you know, their ability to access your subscriber name and address uh, based on some sort of public or semi-public activity that you've done online. Um, you know, so that those proposals have been out there for years, but now their they're the newest version seems to be moving forward more quickly because of the government that we have in place um, now. So that's one round of things that's evolving whether or not that's actually ever going to come to pass because it's been playing for 10 years in Canada um, as, a, as a possibility and has never gotten through because there's opposition to it. And then on another level, there's a legislation before the parliament now that would require businesses to report if they've had a data security breach, um, if it's a material kind of a breach that could harm um, their customers or their employees. Um, and that's never before been something that we've uh, required, you know, voluntarily providing information to the public about uh, if your data has been exposed by a hacker or or some sort of other kind of failure of a safeguard system. So um, we're starting to see, you know, a couple of different things happening, again, because privacy is such a a key uh, value that we are becoming increasingly uh, aware needs to be protected, but at the same time also needing to sort of figure out, how, uh, how to best provide people, um, both, uh, you know, people in their professional capacities and consumers and, and, and employees with the capacity to sort of protect themselves if something has um, happened that might make them vulnerable. So um, those are two things that I know are, are currently happening that are quite uh, contentious on some level, but um, also seem to be, you know, re- repeat kinds of legislation that keeps coming back.
1: So just to summarise back to you before we go into the break, my perception of um, what you've just been saying is that snooping has two faces. On the one hand, um, a lot a lot of it can be very bad in many kinds of ways, but on the other hand, there are times when the self-same information that's being snooped does need to be shared, for the good of the individual or for the good of others. Mm -hmm. And it's a challenge, a social challenge, political challenge, and a legal challenge to figure out just the rules that make that distinction. Uh, In a a word, am I kind of understanding what you just said, Andrea?
2: That's right. That's right. I mean, I think that is exactly what the the Balancing Act uh, really is when you're trying to create um, new facets to the privacy regime, is to figure out, you know, how to protect people's interests, but then also realize, you know, that, that especially with information privacy, um, it must be shared in order for us to function as a society and sort of figuring out when information um, needs to be shared and when it, when a person needs to be able to um, control their information so that it's not shared without their consent.
1: Right. Now, it is time for us to take a short break. I always say we have to pay our rent, too. This is Dr. Gordon Adler, and my guest is Dr. Andrea Slane. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We're coming back.
3: News.
0: when you're 11 years old it seems as if nobody understands what you go through you're not quite a teenager yet but you're definitely not a little kid anymore tune in to life at 11 for the answers and support you need to get through this time in your life your hosts have some amazing life experiences and because of this They have the know-how to get you through 11 and on to 12 and beyond. It's a tough point in your life right now. Get the advice you need on Life at 11, Monday afternoons at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Kids channel.
3: Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: you know I need
2: someone...
0: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome
1: back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Andrea Slane. Our topic is snoopers and privacy for family members. So let's talk some more about snooping. In your sort of experience and knowledge, Andrea, how do snoopers actually use information technology to do their snooping? In other words, what do you see as the source of risks broadly from information to- technology and the way that it's, it's used and the way in which it can lead to snooping?
2: Well, information technology is pretty much at the core of how we store and uh, disseminate information at this point, Um, so information technology is very, very central to any kind of information privacy um, protection. So on the one hand, um, information technology allows us to uh, create archives um, that are vast at this point. Um, it also allows us to uh, aggregate information across a number of databases. So. Um, things that you might have previously um, be able to kept, keep keep separate and secret, you know, your banking information from your medical information, from your um, you know recreational information. Some of these things can be combined um, at this point to create much more robust uh, t- digital profiles of people. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you can also, for convenience and also for possibly for risk, you can send things quite easily electronically uh, across the, the globe. Um, so, you know, there are, there are great advantages, uh, certainly for uh, businesses and also for individuals for convenience sake, but there's also uh, great risks involved in both uh, people getting access to and, you know, widely disseminating and aggregating more information than they ever could before.
1: There's, uh, Andrea, there's a frightening story that I was reading this morning about hackers not just getting into records but actually getting inside so to speak the bodies of human beings of people who've got electronic devices inside them and disturbing the function of that device maybe it's a cardiac pacemaker or something of that nature and so that hacking then takes on a totally new meaning because it then becomes I assume, murder in that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. Now, how far this is just scaremongering and how real it is, is another matter. But it nevertheless says we're dealing with some pretty strong things if they got really into the hands of the wrong people. Now, Andrew, you've already spoken, um, told us quite a lot about how the law responds to snooping in general, but are there any, what are the particular points in law that uh, address the uses of information technology that are prone to snooping?
2: Um, Well, you mentioned in your introduction, I think this is a huge development uh, for Canada, uh, the Jones versus case um, where information technology was at the core of the case in the sense that you, know, you had a bank employee who was um, basically for personal reasons looking into the bank records of, of another employee who also was a client of the bank um, and what was very interesting about that case is that you know unlike many of the sort of hacking cases uh, this person who was Doing this snooping, um, claimed to be doing it basically because she was interested in, uh, you know, the person that her target was actually dating and finding out some things about child support payments and things like that. Um, Or it was it was she was it doesn't matter. The personal aspect of it was really the impetus of uh, of the case. Um, So she wasn't really looking to destroy this other person's financial. credit rating or any of those sorts of things. wasn't really actually interested in even disseminating the information. And the court nonetheless saw this sort of repeated act of looking at her banking records, regardless of the motive and regardless of the ultimate, you know, there was no material harm um, to the victim. They still saw that as something that was actionable. And that's a big development uh, for Canada, because we have been struggling with whether or not there should be a cause of action that was merely about the intrusion part of it and not the dissemination part of it. And here's an example. Finally, of, an, of a court of appeal who has said that yes, you know, it is the time has come because we've we've become so vulnerable to this type of snooping that we need to recognize that it's something that people should be able to, um, you know, get some sort of compensation for. So that's big.
1: Absolutely. Now I'm going to call Bill in now. Okay. Um, Bill, um, we're talking about um, snooping, obviously, and um, Andrea sort of brought us up to speed on the several aspects of the law and the way in which the law responds and the way in which the law is evolving. Now, I want to take you back into your area, or take you into your area, and ask you to talk about the harms that are associated with snooping that uses information technology. Bill, please.
4: Yeah, okay. Well, I would take uh, two angles on that. One would be just the access period and then take actually acting on that information. So, on the access front, basically someone has information to, uh, or access to information they're not supposed to have, um, which I think damages um, the idea of respect and the dignity of the person um, of the information is about. Um, if we form, I believe anyway, that we form relationships by degrees of revealing, and, and this violates that in a rather, rather large degree. Um, I think also along the side of accessing, I think there's a problem there just generally with the idea of I want, it's available, therefore I take. I think embedded in there is a slippery slope or really sloppy ethics. Um, on the action side, I'm just concerned that you've accessed the data and you're using it for some other purpose. Uh, the idea of action at a distance, that information can be used by whoever uh, in ways that you don't know, and, and that I find is one of the, one of the harms. For instance. You might have um, benefits denied or entitlements denied, and, and you, don't, you don't know why. Someone has information, maybe inaccurate information, and has made decisions about you. Um, inferring, I think, something along those lines, too, is, is re- it, you know data is not complete. It is not information. It is purely data, and you have to add flesh to that. And so I get concerned when people start accessing data they're not entitled to, and they start to make a data shadow of you. Um, infer facts that just plain aren't there. Uh, you have knowledge of you have to respond to this thing, and, and you, don't even, you don't know where it came from. So I think there's that that's, that's a potential harm. Action at a distance, and it's acting on partial information. And one of the things that drives me nuts, personally, is that it's the idea that, well, it's out there, I can access it, what's your problem? Uh, the essential question being there, what have you got to hide? I think that this, that's just so the wrong question. Uh, I think the better question is what have we got to reveal? And, <clears throat> and through accessing and taking action, if it becomes too commonplace, that, that flips the question around, which I think is fundamentally flawed.
1: Thanks, Bill. I'm going to pass this over now to Andrea and to ask you, please, what about, the law's response to the kind of harms that Bill's just been talking about. Could you just guide us in legal thinking about the way in which law, therefore society and the rest of us, um, should respond to or deal with those kinds of harms? Andrea?
2: Um, Well, I would agree with the characterization of the harms that Bill just um, put forward and that the law has ways of recognizing... Maybe not to our satisfaction all the time. Each of those kinds of harms, so that you know, the um, when a person's uh, treated like a bit of data rather than as a as a full human being, you know, when they're being um, exploited as a you know tool for somebody else's gain um, rather than being respected. I mean, those are those are dignitary harms uh, that the law, at least the crim- the criminal law, is geared towards. Uh, addressing some of those kinds of more egregious examples of people being exploited, um, you know, as data rather than as people, and treated as people. Um, and treat as people. Uh, most of our private sector privacy law, on the other hand, um, talks about autonomy and choices and and those sorts of things that sort are of trying to protect people's ability um, to uh, control their information uh, where it is, considered to be appropriate for them to do so. And and we've seen that there's a lot of problems with figuring out exactly, you know, the parameters of that control and and when that control can be compromised legally. Um, And then I think, you know, we are starting to see, as I was saying uh, just before with the intrusion upon seclusion uh, action, and also with things like the creation of um, an identity theft uh, crime where, you know, no actual monetary loss has to happen, it just has to be that the person has held uh, somebody else's information for what can be assumed to be um, uh, fraudulent purposes, um, But there's a, a recognition that, that these kinds of harms are actually something that, that don't translate into monetary loss necessarily. Um, so some of the time we are able to recognize that you know, there is some kind of harm that occurs aside from the fact that you, know, you might have lost uh, some money. Um, or some other sort of you know reputational interest that has some sort of money figure attached to it. I think that those are sort of interesting changes that are that we we are able to on some level address, but most of the time it's easier still for us to uh, to see things in terms of you know somebody having to actually lost some sort of dollar figure.
1: Bill, to you, technology, the information technology, um, how, can you say more about how the bad people, the snoopers with really bad intentions, how do they actually use information technology to, to do their nasty but no
4: nasty work? Well, generally speaking, you have to get access somehow. Um, so that's the trick, getting access to the, to the system. Certainly, uh, pre-computer wiretapping and this stuff, you had to get access to a room and actually wire the room. Physical risk involved. You had to be there. With um, information technology and databases, uh, it becomes quite a bit different. First of all, there's no physical access required. You need to access a network somewhere. So you need access to the system. uh, The more, the longer the network is, the more potential access points there are. So I'm thinking of the electronic health record just as an example. You have physicians need access to it. Lab people need access to it. Pharmacists need access to it. Hospitals need apps, access to it, countless administrators uh, or assistants need access to it. The longer the network is, the more potential access points there are, the easier it is to find one that's unsecured and then worm your way in through that. Um, sometimes it's hacking. I, I think that's a term that um, the media has fall, fallen in love with. <laughs> Generally speaking, uh, most breaches are, are, the, are, are the product of somebody inside. Either just being careless or willful, um, or in this case, the case that you're talking about, um, caught up in, in their own drama, they they just access what they can. Um, yeah. So the need at uh, some point of act, uh, entry act, uh, hacking is not normally the nor- is not necessarily the way it's done most often. Uh, social engineering. There, um, some of the research I'm doing right now is just scary for how hard people work to convince others that they are on the inside. Um, and, and that's an incredible, it's very, very hard to protect against. Uh, and then employees generally are quite sloppy. You've got things like, well, you've got too many passwords to remember. It is plain do. But well, you write them down. You have the infamous yellow stickies on the computers. We use common passwords, Then they have our dog, our birth dates, that sort of thing. Um, we leave buildings unsecure because, you know, that door out back where the smokers go? Well, they come in through the back door there. Or, or, again, the social engineering thing, one of the re- things I'm reading right now is a, someone getting a call in a, in a medical records facility from someone claiming to be a doctor in an emergency room, saying they have the patient, information from records of the patient will die, that kind of uh, social engineering. So, how do they gain access? Certainly there's the, um, most often it's through, through um, insiders, social engineering.
1: Th- that's... Um, a sort of scary interrelationship, isn't it, between the bad people and the technology, um, that e- each in way their ways facilitating the other. Now, on that somber point, it is time again for us to take the short break, so we're going to do that. This is Dr. Gordon Hadley, and my guests are Dr. Andreas Slane and Dr. Bill Bonner. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. We're coming back.
0: You've got your family and you need to keep talking and you need to keep understanding and look into yourself, who you are, what kind of person you want to be. What would be the one most simple advice you would give to a healing agoraphobic? I don't know if it's a panic attack or whatever it
2: is. It's happening very frequently. I don't have to be in any place where there's no air. It can happen even on the road. People get over things. You can't look back. You've got to
0: look forward and learn something from your past. Join Dr. Raymond Hamden in the psychologist's chair every Tuesday. At 9 a.m. U.S. Pacific time on Voice America Variety.
3: Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern, with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the Seventh Wave Network. Streaming live. The leader in Internet Talk Radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Help, you know, I need someone. Help. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to G at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at my monam now back to family caregivers unite
1: welcome back to our listeners to family caregivers unite and dr andrea slain and dr bill bonner our topic is snoopers and privacy for family members so now let's talk about the challenges in protecting against snooping now first of all with you What are the you see, perhaps, as the three most serious challenges for information technology in protecting against snooping in all the meanings that we've given it? Bill?
4: Yeah, no, I think, first of all, awareness. I think, uh, unlike someone robbing a bank, you go in the morning, vault's open, money's missing. With information technology, someone can access the data, and you still have it. So you're not aware that it's been stolen or been uh, copied. Um, breaches, generally speaking, aren't reported. Companies and organizations do not like, let it be known, that they've been breached. And so, organizations trying to assess the risk and, and the appropriate response just don't have the data to work with. That's one, is uh, awareness. Second, I think, is just being, just being naive. Incredibly naive. Uh, they see the benefits and ignore you know, the potential risk. They don't have any knowledge or understanding of what's going on before. But somehow everything's different. You know, we're in the information age. Nothing in the past matters. Well, I got news for you. Um, These studies that I'm I'm reading, it's scary in terms of the full-time job and the length, the pretexting, social engineering, the coaxing that goes on that people who want access to it, now that it's available, will go to them to do that. Um, These new programs create attractiveness and ease of access, and so the distributed networks... um, being naive about just how open you are. And then finally, I think people. People will defeat any technical security. So you can put padlock after padlock after padlock after padlock padlock on the front door, and somebody knocks and someone on the inside undoes them all. And so I think that we're uh, focusing not enough on carelessness, nosiness, or just willfulness. It's damage and there's no consequences at the moment, or at least no serious consequences. Although I appreciate what Andrew was saying later, that it's evolving. Yes.
1: Andrea, straight uh-huh. over to you. Those sound like pretty pretty daunting challenges for the law to confront when it's either a- assessing the adequacies of protections where something's gone wrong and has uh-huh. occurred or where it's trying to say to uh, ordinary people who are involved in technology like this, here's what you should do to keep the protection going. Andrea, talk about the, the three most serious challenges you see that the law in
2: Well, I'd like to pick up on um, on the idea of uh, of assessing the adequacy of protections from the point of view of, of businesses that have um, suffered some sort of uh, breach, and it doesn't have to be a hacker. I totally agree. It's often, uh, you know, the lost laptop or the um, you know the compromised um, file system where somebody has. Know, left their passwords easily accessible and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I spoke at the beginning a little bit about... Um Bill C. Twelve and its efforts—that's uh, the proposed legislation that would try to talk about uh, data security breaches and assign some um, responsibilities uh, to the organizations that have, have suffered those breaches. I mean, there's still there's still lots of criticism of the, of the legislation, but it is an effort to say um, that businesses at least have to have some sort of obligation um, that can be enforced. Um, you know, where, where serious breaches have occurred. You know, and, I, and you. Uh, are obviously very much interested in health records, but where where somebody could actually uh, become vulnerable to the kind of um, manipulation that somebody who knows too much about somebody's uh, health vulnerabilities uh, could uh, make use of. I I think those those kinds of breaches would certainly be quite um, serious in most cases where people should be informed um, that a breach has occurred. Now, of course, the problem there is that, okay, what can you do? You you require um, a health organization to tell their clients and patients, you know, that this has happened and that consequently they may be vulnerable. But then it's up to them to then protect themselves further, right? Like you can't really um, leave it at that, right? So then you you run into the next problem that Bill was discussing about people's uh, sort of, well, you know, Most of the time, nothing happens, so I don't really have to worry about it until, you know, something slaps me in the face. So, um, you know, I think that that kind of effort to try to protect people, but then also having to put a lot of responsibility on private actors, including individuals, uh, in order to make the system really work, uh, I think is going to be, you know, an ongoing battle um, for the law.
1: Right. Bill... What in what directions is information technology itself evolving in response to the kind of things that you both have been talking about? Um, what more do you think information technology can do and should do for protection?
4: Uh, well, my own feeling is they're not. Well, first of all, we have to clarify who they are. I mean, the, the technology is, is 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 doesn't do anything, right? It's it's in use by organizations, so. I think that's where we have to focus attention in terms of responding. I think your question's beautiful, because that's all they're doing, in my opinion, is responding. Um, there, there are a number of reasons for that, but they're not being proactive, is I guess what I'm trying to say. And if they just don't know they've been breached, or how many breaches are? There. Uh, lack of information. I think too, there's a, a lack of um, lack of cost associated. With it. So you no. Know, again, going to the idea they're not doing enough, uh, uh, all the organizations' businesses. A cost-benefit analysis. End of the day. It's uh-huh. a very simple equation. No cost. Industry itself or d- industries generally resist any kind of attempt to rein in their, their activities. Uh, particularly in the United States, uh, the idea of, well, we leave it to us, we can do it it's self-regulation. Um, that's just a way of ducking the question and, and it also ducks the fact that the problems are arising through self-regulation. Um, so the focus is largely again and also not enough has been on on, on technical side and, and outsiders when I think the problem is largely insiders. I forgot all about the whole laptop and, and lost USB keys that you mentioned. Um, I think though they do react to threats. Organizations do react to threats, so, breach notification, legislation, lawsuits this will get their attention um, until that time, until something gets their attention has a monetary cost to it on accountability and responsibility. To disappear or aren't factored in. I think, though, that these uh, reactive to threats, these potential breach notification laws, lawsuits generally may force, and hopefully it's not just wishful thinking, force organizations to visit questions that have not had a priority in the past. That includes things like what information to collect, how much do we actually need, storing it, how long do we store it, should we encrypt it, how do we encrypt it. Um, as long as there's no penalties, then access levels might not be... Uh, Studied as much or are considered as much, not everyone should have access to the information, right.
1: that sort of thing bill I'm going to just stop you there because I want to turn over to Andrea now and ask basically the the mirror question is, okay, what's the law? what can the law do um, in relation to all this uncertainty and particularly, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm going to ask you you know I've been reading some of these cases and the class actions are more class actions or actions by individuals against businesses, hospitals and the rest of it. Do you see those as an answer? As a, as a, as a way forward or not?
2: Um, well I think there is that sort of cost-benefit problem, and that continues to plague uh, some of the solutions. Uh, you know, where where it is an organization that is a rational kind of an organization that's operating, rather than um, some sort of rogue uh, kind of classic um, hacker type or something like that. You know, um, and when you don't have penalties that are um, significant enough to really uh, warrant a change in, in the way that that an organization does its business and handles its information, then you're always going to have businesses that don't uh, that don't meet that sort of optimum standard. But um, I think we are starting to see at least uh, some movement. Um, I mean, Canadian law has moved tremendously over the course of about a decade, you know, in terms of just implementing a lot of private sector um, privacy, uh, the whole private sector privacy regime, you know, whether it's... The federal one under PIPEDA or the various provincial ones that that also um, work in the same fashion. So we have we have actually seen a lot of change over the course of a decade that um, that I think shows some willingness to uh, accept change in Canada in a way that isn't the same as in the U.S. And I think that's absolutely right. The U.S. is much more resistant to um, putting constraints on on what businesses can do. So you know, I think I think Canada is still um, Kind of an open field for privacy, so I think there are some changes that could could still come in down the road, including possibly imposing penalties. I mean, I've, I have mentioned at the beginning um, the uh, the the law enforcement um, bill bill C thirty, the one that's changing, that's hoping to change some of the investigative techniques. That would impose a lot of financial burdens on um, service providers, um, and so far they have been able to delay it partly because of those concerns, but maybe it'll go through this time. So I think Canada does have a different kind of formula going on in terms of its balancing of the various interests, the public interests and the private interests that are at play in, uh, in regulating this field. So I think it is an open, open field in Canada in a way that it isn't uh, as much in the U.S.
1: Now, I'm going to take a take the break at this particular moment um, because in the next segment I'm going to be asking you both in a more general way, what are the things that you think need doing to address these sorts of situations so I'm going to ask to take the break now this is Dr. Gordon Allen my guests are Dr. Andrea Slane and Dr. Bill Bonner you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel stay tuned, we're
3: coming Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America.
0: To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every friday at 8 a.m pacific mind brain and body on voice america health and wellness radio dedicated to your health wealth wisdom and purpose
3: play ball if you're looking to talk baseball even in the off season look no further than the king's corner talking baseball with former world series champion jim leiritz jim's known for a rather controversial stance during his show He's brutally honest and ready to talk with current and former players, owners, and other key figures to bring you baseball from an insider's view. You won't want to miss a single episode. The King's Corner Talking Baseball with Jim Leyritz is heard every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Sports Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You know I need someone You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back. To
1: family caregivers unite and our two guests. Now we're going to talk about things that both the guests would like to see done to promote protection against snooping. So starting with you Bill, what are the things that you would like to see done to promote privacy protection for members of families whose health conditions render them specially vulnerable to snooping now obviously looking at privacy protection from your perspective a technological perspective bill what do you think
4: well i think i've already mentioned i'd I'd like to see uh, breach notification laws created i would if i were running the show um increase the cost equation i've already mentioned that one so i won't dwell on that one i would love just love to see the whole area of collection of information challenged. Um, there is, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the fair information, fair information principles. It underlies all legislation, but, boy, it is unchallenged. And so I would like to distinguish between need versus wants. And I don't think the way the current collection regime is or is exercised there's a distinction, an adequate distinction. Um, I would like to challenge blanket consent forms. When you sign up for banks or bank accounts or you sign up for insurance companies, they basically say that they're going to access whatever they want for as long as they want. And there's, in some cases, no time limit. So those are those are three. Um, I guess, in order to, to limit the breaches, I would like to see faces attached to breaches. So I'd like to see CEOs' faces attached to breaches. I think that would have, not a monetary cost, but it would certainly be a, we get it on the boardroom table. So those, those, are, those are a few that I think right. I would try and do.
1: And Jim, what... Supposing you're in charge, what more would you like to see done to promote privacy protection You know, in these situa- situations of family members vulnerable because of their health conditions, um, looking at law and public policy generally? Andrew? Andrew?
2: Well I think uh that goes back to the original question about who does the snooping right so there's different uh responses I'd like to see depending on who we're targeting but I think there is a lot of um, misuse of information of people uh with Health conditions that make them vulnerable, um, whether it's by uh, insurers or uh, others who would take advantage um, of maybe financial vulnerabilities that a person uh, encounters also when they have health issues. Um, So I think the regulation um, of those businesses in a way that that has a bit more bite to it um, around the use of people's information, I think. would be helpful. Uh, then I think uh, certainly the people uh, who are the sort of classic criminals, the uh, the identity thieves and the hackers and the fraudsters who take advantage of, of fa- people with health conditions, I think certainly enforcement in those areas um, could be beefed up, and I'd like to see that. Um, but then, on the other hand, um, it's also important, I think, for families uh, to realize that you know, the bad people aren't always on the outside, and there are sometimes uh, tensions within uh, families, people... Um you know, vying for various kinds of information that will help them, um, you know, prepare for somebody's, whether it's a, you know, last will and testament kind of situation or uh, even while a person is living to kind of get their assets. Uh, so, you know, again, sort of questions about um, how people can make use of the, uh, the lots that we already have um, to help protect them or to help their family members be protected, Um Uh, get the information out there to to those family caregivers that could be in a position to help uh, protect uh, their vulnerable family members. I think that's important
1: as well. Okay. Now, um, I'm going to put you both in the position of politicians who are are competing for election uh, to lead on this question of protecting privacy of families and family members. So, Bill, I want to know what your message is so that I can decide whether I would vote for you. Bill? <laughs>
4: well, thank you. Um, I would go back to uh, the limit collection. I think that uh, you cannot snoop into what's not collected. I-, I think there's a huge difference between needs and wants, um, and, and if that's not clearly distinct. Um, I had a prescription filled at one store, and and the woman started keying into her computer and was asking all kinds of stuff. What do you need this for? So I took the prescription and went across the hall and said, what's the minimum you need to do this? And it was hugely different. So as a a politician, I would work towards limiting collection. I think the, the fair information principles underlying all privacy legislation work except that one. No one's making an attempt.
1: Andrea, same question. You're in charge. You're vying for election. What would cause people like me, skeptics and family caregivers and family members to vote for you? What would your message be to get them to vote for you?
2: Um, I think people need to know what their rights are. um, And once people are able to articulate uh, what kinds of things um, they do not want, other people to be able to do with their information, uh, what they do want, because you know, there certainly are uh, positive aspects to sharing information, that uh, we need to help people get clear about uh, their own boundaries and their own uh, benefits to, to sharing information, especially as a person with some sort of health vulnerability, um, and then give, them the t- give people the tools to be able to, uh, to protect those rights. I think... Um, you know, more public education about it, uh, more uh, accessible means of lodging complaints and, you know, whether it's through class actions or on an individual basis, I think um, people need access to uh, remedies when when things go wrong and they need access to information to get there in the first place.
1: Right. Now I'm going to ask you both a quick supplementary and I have to admit to a bit of bias in this one. Um, one or two of us are working on a family caregiving guideline idea, several of them, and one of the topics is um, protecting against the kind of things that you've both been talking about. Um, give me a straight answer to this question. Do you think the idea of a guideline is useful? Um, if it isn't, please would you say why? And. Would you just quickly say whether this is the sort of thing you would support? Now, I'm not going to come back to you for money or anything, but you know I might want to consult you for advice and the rest of it. Um, but first of all, I should ask you, and I'm doing it on air, what do you think about the idea of a guideline for family caregivers who may be confronted with some of the things you're talking about? Uh, um, Bill first and then Andrew. Okay.
4: Okay. Um... Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I agree with what Andrea was saying about, you know, allowing people or providing people with information so they know their rights, remedies, and so on, and the guideline could, could play that role. Um, it still leaves, I think, um, caregivers isolated in the sense of, okay, now I've got my guideline. How do I work with it? It may be in conjunction with, with some sort of uh, social networking and some sort of power through numbers that something like that could work. Um, But I, I, well, I'll leave it like that. I think that the the reason we're we're isolated, I think that the the problem is, that is the problem.
1: Key point. Andrew. what do you think?
2: I think that the guideline is helpful um, for the reasons that I I said before, but I also agree that it is something that has to be kind of a a living document that allows people to have a a place to go and uh, and. And talk to others uh, who might be similarly situated or to find out further, you know, something that's even more particular to their situation, to ask questions. Um, So, yes, I think a social social side uh, would be even better. But I I definitely think a, a guideline would be a good start.
1: Just quickly, thank you both. Uh, very much for your both your answers, and I'd vote for both of you. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how the, the arrangement <laughs> the election would be, but I'm sure our current government would have some ideas. Now, what I would like to say back to you both on this broad point is that the idea of social media, social networking uh, among family caregivers is really catching on. Um, families f- feel isolated when something goes on, goes wrong, um, not just with the information technology, but with the health of their family members. And they need information, they need information they can trust, and they need to be able to talk to others who've travelled the road, um, who are travelling the road, and have been through the kind of things that they as individuals are going to go through. And just to give you one example, it's not to do with this, but... autistic kids are very prone to being exploited because of certain things that they find difficult to do and um, mothers are starting to build one mother in particular, Sarah Winter, starting to build um, a social networking system so that with the supervision of the parents Uh, Autistic children can communicate with each other and have a good relationship, a good supportive relationship from each other. And that points to another interesting aspect of computers, and I'm sure you both know this, is that computers can sometimes be very good workarounds for things in the brain that aren't working as well as they should do. So in that sense, I very strongly take your point, both of you, that if we are to do things, we need to engage family caregivers by using whatever media we have, social media, um, internet connections, all that kind of thing, to share our information and understanding. And that, to some extent, is the purpose of this show. And that leads me to say, first of all, thank you to our listeners because uh, without you, there's no show. And I want to say a particular thank you to Andrew and Bill, because you really have shared with us a mixture of your experience, your insights, and your advice. And you've also shown that there are people, and you are them, and you're included with others, who are actually working hard on solving some of these problems so that information technology brings us benefits without the costs of huge risks. So I'd like to share with you my not just my vote but my very best wishes to you both in all of your work and who knows I might like to uh, invite you to be on another show so we can do some more of this kind of in-depth discussion which has been very very useful now in our next episode this is for our listeners we're going to talk about crime stoppers working with family caregivers so please join us same time same spot on the internet talk to you then
0: thank you again for joining us this week for family caregivers unite with your host dr gordon atherley